Welcome to Change My Mind. Over 80% of people think we're becoming more divided. Does it have to be that way? We're bringing together leaders to ask them about a time they changed their mind and why, giving us all an insight into what holds back and why changing our mind can be such a powerful thing. I'm Ali Goldsworthy, based at Stanford in California and founder of the Depolarization Project. Normally, I get to co-host with the fantastic Alex Chesterfield and Laura Osborne. But today, this is a special edition with just me, our guest, and in the background, their seven-month-old son, Gabriel. Sometimes you'll get to hear him. Today's guest, who we recorded before the events of this week on Brexit, changed her mind on an issue she had spoken out and made her name on. Joe Swinson MP is one of Britain's most respected politicians. Representing East Dunbartonshire in Scotland, Joe is deputy leader of the Liberal Democrats. First elected as an MP at the age of 25, Joe went on to serve as both an equalities and business minister in the Conservative Lib Dem coalition government. There, she was responsible for introducing shared parental leave and gender pay gap reporting. In 2015, she lost her seat only to regain it in emphatic fashion at the 2017 election. Her first book, Equal Power, was published last year and is set to be reissued as a paperback on February the 7th. Hi Joe, thank you very much for coming to be on Change My Mind. I'm delighted to chat to you today. I'd love to just start by asking about where your interest in politics came from and how did you get to where you are today? I think I always wanted to change the world when I was growing up. Uh, everything from when I was, you know, eight years old and, uh, you know, buying things in the body shop and, you know, you'd buy your strawberry shaped soap. And alongside that, you'd sign a petition at the till to stop animal testing for cosmetics or to promote fair trade. So I was even as a, a child getting quite into the idea that we should try and change the world and make it better. And that really followed through. Uh, school where I got involved in the debating society and then when I went to university I joined the Lib Dems having already figured out that that was where my political values and opinions lay and from there it really snowballed. So you say you joined the Lib Dems and then I mean I I know you and I've known you since that time with a worryingly large number of Bacardi breezes (laughs) in our our evening activities. (laughs) Yeah I know I don't want to relive those drinks or necessarily all those moments Um, but you you then obviously you stood for parliament and um, became elected at at 25 and then you were appointed to various positions and and ended up in the the coalition government. Is there any roles or achievements that you're particularly proud of that you Well, when I was Minister for Employment Relations, I did feel I was able to make significant changes. So I introduced shared parental leave. That was the the main thing I was really excited about when I became a minister was being able to deliver that. And that's basically letting men and women decide how to share the time they take away from work when they have a new baby. And I think it's important for children because you know their evidence there is that it's good for their development to have the input from from mum and from dad. And it applies to same-sex couples uh, as well. It's also good for uh, relationships and it's good for equality because I think we're only going to get gender equality when you actually have uh, much more equality within domestic responsibilities. So it's a really good way to help that to happen faster. And for the benefit of our American listeners, the coalition government in the UK existed between 2010 and 2015. The smaller party was the Lib Dems, of which you're a member, Joe. The larger party was the Conservatives or Tories, 
who, as their name suggests, tend to be a bit more conservative. Though it would be wrong to suggest that means they aren't in favour of gender equality. This was the party of Margaret Thatcher. Still, news reports indicated the Conservatives were not always with you, Joe. What I'm curious about, is there anybody in the coalition government that you had to change their mind on oh. to get them to be in favour <laughs> of this? Well, yes. So it was it was an interesting fight to get the policy through because there were a range of views within the Conservatives. So Theresa May, at the time, was the Home Secretary, obviously now the Prime Minister of the UK. She was a big fan of it. She was in favour. So she was somebody who was always uh, an advocate. Whereas there was a, a minister called Grant Shapps uh, who seemed to sort of stand in the way of, of it. And whenever, the way that it worked in government is that in order to make progress and to say, right, this is how we're going to do the next bit, you would have to get what was called right round clearance. So you had to write a letter to all the cabinet ministers on the relevant committee and they had to say yes before you could go ahead and make your announcement. And so there would be various ones that would just always go, no, I'm not saying yes yet. So sometimes it would be that you would actually have a face-to-face meeting. Um, Sometimes you would try and do it through sort of political aides would have a a discussion. But the other thing was actually to try and build public support for it so it became more difficult for them to resist it. And one of the other things that was important from a conservative perspective is they were really concerned about how business would feel. So getting organisations like the CBI, which is the Confederation of British Industry, on board and the Federation of Small Business was actually crucial to unlocking some of the opposition within government as well. I'm interested in in how you framed that then, where you talked about it was harder for them to resist, but did they actually change their minds, do you think? Well, it's interesting. So I I don't know if they did. I think often what happens with these things is that people change their minds after the event. So uh, another good example would be I fought against the Conservatives for five years to bring in gender pay gap reporting, which means that all large companies should have to publish the pay gap between men and women in their organisation. And that came in last year. And it was one of the most talked about news stories of the year because suddenly there's this really interesting information. Now, the Conservatives resisted that. We eventually got them to agree to it, basically because it was about to be an election. And again, it was not that they changed their mind. It was just that it was too embarrassing for them to have a fight about it a few weeks before an election. But then they sort of pretended that it was their idea and now have been saying, we've done this, it's great. And so, again, I think sometimes the the mind actually does change from a position where people go, well, no, that's possible. We can't even countenance that to then seeing something, you know, in place and other people going, oh, this is a good idea. And then people think, oh, that's fine. Another good example, I think, would be voting at 16, which I've been a long-standing supporter of. I think people should be able to vote at the age of 16. They can go and they can work and earn taxes. They can agree to join the army. They can get married. In Scotland, you don't even need your parents' permission for that, which is why so many people come to Gretna Green to get married. Uh, Or I don't know actually how many do, but uh, uh, famously in literature they do, uh, such as uh, Pride and Prejudice. But anyway, I digress. Votes of 16, uh, an important issue, has been bitterly resisted by many, particularly on the right, but actually in all parties. And then in the 2014 referendum on Scottish independence, 16-year-olds voted. And, you know, the experience of watching secondary schools open their gates at, at half past three in the afternoon and lots of young people just go straight down to the polling station, people taking it really seriously. I mean, I spoke to politicians who had previously been against votes of 16, who had then gone and spoken to their local schools and colleges and been so impressed by the engagement that young people had. So I think in those cases, yeah, their minds did change. Yeah, which is great. And I'm wondering, is there a time when maybe a Conservative coalition colleague changed your mind? Well, yeah, interesting. Uh, Certainly 
they surprise me sometimes. So I remember there was one colleague who I had who, if you sort of imagine your typical conservative, you know, so in their 50s or 60s, grey haired, uh, very traditional, you know, just what you would imagine your archetypal conservative would be. And one of those was was my colleague in the business department, Michael Fallon. And I just kept anticipating and expecting that he would be really difficult and that I wouldn't get on with him. And then I went to sort of meeting after meeting with him and came away and just kind of went, oh, well, that, that went better than I expected. Oh, well, he was actually quite straightforward. He was at, and so I think I I very much recognised that I'd had an unconscious bias. I'd been expecting a particular type of behaviour. I'd been expecting that, you know, I would not manage to, to get on with him and then actually surprise myself that, that I did. Have so, you told him that? I don't know if I have, actually. Um, I have, it's an anecdote I have used because, um, but I don't know if I've told him directly. I, I did write a nice thing about him in my book, actually. Do you think, but but do you think that would make him feel better if you did tell him? Do you think that's an important part? Well, I mean, it's also a bit of a backhanded compliment because it's saying I thought you were basically a dreadful stereotypical Tory to start with. <laughs> um, but the bit I wrote in my book was that I, I was really worried when I told him I was pregnant because I was uh, pregnant. I had my first baby when I was a minister and I felt I really should tell my ministerial colleagues before it went public and I just thought in my mind I expected he was going to be all difficult and you know, or even if he you know was sort of fairly pleasant he would basically be thinking bad things about me you know because pregnancy discrimination is still rife and actually he was really lovely he just you know we were in the voting lobby he just sat next to me he squeezed my hand and he said this is going to be the most amazing thing you've done and I just didn't really expect that kind of warm emotional response so I you know I put that anecdote in my book so I don't know if he's read my book I would be surprised if he had, but then actually maybe that's again me making assumptions. So maybe he has. Well, I suspect he might have looked for his name for the, in the index, <laughs> <laughs> which is what people tend to do. So we ask everybody that comes on the show, Joe, to talk to us about a time that they've changed their mind yeah. on an issue. And I know you've put a bit of thought into this. And like some yeah. of our other guests didn't find it the most straightforward thing to... Well, I realised there weren't that many occasions when I changed my mind, particularly on something that is substantive. You know, I, you know, I like broccoli and I didn't used to, for example, you know, but that doesn't really count. I, I think that think. is quite seismic. To be well, you know, it's, uh, I, I, feel, I feel quite virtuous for having got myself to a situation of liking broccoli so much that it's now my favourite vegetable. But anyway, um, to think of something that was really kind of substantial that I changed my mind on. Well, yeah, it was quite difficult. And I think in politics... Maybe, maybe particularly, maybe this is true of everyone. You're forced to take positions. You're sometimes forced to take positions on an issue before you've necessarily had the chance to really consider it. Because one of the answers that is very difficult for politicians to give is, I don't know, or I haven't decided yet. And you can sometimes do that on some, on some issues. So, for example, on the matter of assisted dying, which is one of these sort of touchstone really big kind of ethical issues. We haven't had to vote on it since I've been an MP. And so, you know, I've I've engaged with it. I'm probably minded to look for some change, but I'm cautious. And so the way I've talked about it has been like that, but it isn't absolutely committed. But that I would say is is unusual. You normally don't have that amount of space um, to, to, to have time. And therefore you've had to take public positions. I mean, you've already taken a public position on something the cost of changing your mind is actually quite high. So so I think that's one of the difficulties. But the thing that I changed my mind on, and it, you know, it only took me 15 years, really, um, was how you could get more women into politics. And I started off in 2001 vehemently opposing the idea of all women shortlists, where you say in these certain constituencies, only women can put themselves forward to become the party's candidate. 
And and, and I, I opposed it so much to the extent that the party, the Lib Dems, had a big debate about it at a conference. And I summed up the debate against all women shortlist. And I had to go head to head against one of my absolute heroines, Shirley Williams, who was advocating it. And and so anyway, I, I campaigned against it. And then over a period of time, eventually changed my mind. But it took me a long time. It wasn't until 2016 that I actually came to the conclusion that we should have this. What I thought was interesting was that for so long, I'd done a lot of thinking about it in 2001. But then because I'd taken a position, I then was defending my position for for a long time. Um, now, I, I, you know, I think I changed my mind ultimately because of the experience that I had. So probably in 2005, you know, I wouldn't have concluded that there wasn't another way of doing it, which is ultimately what I did conclude. But at the same time, it might not have taken me as long as 2016 if I had been constantly reassessing whether that was still the right position. And what was it that triggered you to begin really changing your mind and take you on that process? Well, it's really interesting. So it was Willie Rennie, who is the leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats, who had decided he was going to take on this issue of how to get more women elected. And, you know, he was interested in all women shortlists and I was a bit sceptical at first. And what I had often been really annoyed about was, you know, myself and, you know, dozens and dozens of other activists across the party had been really stuck in trying to get more women to, you know, stand, to encourage people, to get them through training and to really help women become MPs in that way. But some of the men and some of the women, but, you know, this category was mainly men, people in leadership roles in the party hadn't really been that fussed about doing that stuff. And then they'd kind of suddenly realised it was a bit embarrassing, we didn't have enough women. And then they'd kind of go for what I would perceive to be a sort of sticking plaster solution of just a woman shortlist. So when Willie first suggested it, I think I was like, oh, is this just, you know, male leaders can't be bothered putting in the work, can't, you know, use their own political power to change this. Or even giving something up and making room for a woman. Yeah, exactly. And so anyway, but what he did, he was he was pretty clever because I said, well, you know, you know how I feel about all women shortlist, Willie. And he asked me to join this working group that was going to look at what we should do in the Scottish party to to resolve this issue and to really make progress. So he got five people together. Um, at least two of us had been vocal opponents of all women shortlist, which I think was a very smart thing for him to do. And uh, and, and we basically had all these conference calls where we, we discussed it in depth. And ultimately, <laughs> through that process, came up with a, ma- a package of measures, which wasn't just about all women shortlist, because I was always clear it's not enough on its own anyway because it, it doesn't actually solve the root problem. But that was then part of what we suggested. And so it, I had to go on that journey and it was somebody else that had to do that. And actually, probably one of the things that convinced me was that suddenly we had a leader who was prepared to not just say, well, I want a really quick resolution to this problem. I'm actually going to put my own political capital, you know, where my words are on this and I'm really going to agitate for it. And, you know, he came up against a lot of opposition. But that also helped prove to me he was really serious about it. And and that probably helped me to move as well. And uh, thank you for that. And I suppose I'm also interested about when campaigners have tried to speak to you as an MP. Uh, is there a time when anything's really changed your mind on an issue around that and you, you're grateful? What's been effective? So I can remember, actually, to go back to the assisted dying thing, I'm not sure it's necessarily changed my mind, but certainly felt quite an effective interaction. They organised uh, a meeting in Parliament and they, ha- they had some people come along who themselves were terminally ill and, and really were c- considering this in terms of what they might want to do. And equally, people who had 
experienced that with a loved one. And so I think I think personal storytelling is one of the things that can be quite effective because it's quite. I, I certainly think it's more effective than uh, than you know spouting facts and figures at somebody because it starts to make the connection and and ultimately uh, you know our emotions drive a lot of these things you know we can pretend that we're all incredibly rational beings but I do think that is a pretense uh, and so actually the the kind of the emotional underpinning of that um, is uh, is important. Oh, Gabriel, I think you're deciding you want to be involved in the podcast, don't you? Gabriel's thinking he's a rational thinker. And yeah. objects to your point of view. Rational thinker. His rationale being, I always want milk, which uh, we can do something about. So, do you want to take a pause for a second? No, no, I think it'll okay. be all right. <laughs> Hello. Um, so, I guess that we've talked about what might be effective. What's ineffective in terms of influencing you as an MP that, that people try and do? Well, so I mentioned facts and figures. I mean, I think the kind of spamming that happens, you know, of, of emails and just, you know, is not particularly effective. I, I mean, the other thing is, I would say weight of numbers. So when lots of constituents get in touch with you, I don't think it makes you necessarily change your mind, but I think it makes you give more attention to the issue. So I once said a particular piece of legislation that more than 600 of my constituents got in touch about. Now, that is the that is by far the most. That, what was it, your? It was the human fertilisation and embryology bill. So it was a lot of these kind of ethical issues about what you ought to be able to do in terms of medical research on embryos and, and all of that sort of stuff. So it, it raised pretty strong passions. Now, I would say 95% of the people getting in touch at least were in one direction, generally fairly against these liberalisations of what the rules were to make things uh, easier to to undertake that research and so on. And, and I didn't have the position of a particular religious view that said, well, this is inherently wrong. So I remember I ended up spending a huge amount of time going to, um, you know, meetings and sitting through the debates, but also there was a lot of um, meetings in parliament with sort of, you know, experts, scientists, ethicists, if you like, coming to talk about it. I ended up actually not voting generally in the way that most of my constituents wanted. I mean, there was multiple votes on lots of different elements of it. But I did write a six-page letter back to explain on every single vote why I did the way I did and what my what my kind of assessment of the arguments were. And what was really interesting about that exercise was a lot of people, and they mentioned it to me on the doorstep years later, were, even if they were upset or, or you know, didn't like the way I voted, they were really glad that I had thought seriously about it. And, and so I think that, yeah, I would say when a lot of constituents get in touch about something, it makes you think, right, I'm going to have to justify what I do. I need to really think about it. I need to be absolutely certain that I know why I'm doing it. And, you know, you ultimately are sent to be a parliamentarian to to come to a view on something, not just to, you know, if 75% of my constituents said they wanted to bring back hanging, well, sorry, no, that's that's not that's not something I'm ever going to vote for. You know, I've been a member of Amnesty International longer than I've been an MP. I'm, you know, human rights is is sort of embedded in my my value system, so I'm I'm not going to do that. But at the same time, I think numbers can help you concentrate on things. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. And talking of spending time with people who you you disagree with, you've come out quite strongly in favour of a second referendum on the European Union. And we call I'm, it a people's vote because it will yeah. be on a different question than the first time round. <laughs> well, I'm also conscious that we're recording this so, and it might date within the next half well, an hour, let yes, alone the next true. week or two. Um, but I, I guess, do you find that in such a febrile atmosphere that exists in the UK at the minute, when you come across someone who disagrees with you on that, if you give them such a 
a thoughtfully, you know, considered position, are they able to engage with it? So and I, are you in return yeah, able to engage? I, I mean, I think, I think the debate on Brexit at the moment is very polarised, very fractious. I mean, I've not been in Parliament a lot because I've been in maternity leave. I've been in for occasional votes, um, which have been sort of ones where the government is it, you know, potentially, well, we did defeat them three times a couple of weeks ago. But, but it, yeah, the, the atmosphere, the mood is very scratchy, very, uh, very unhappy. And I, I don't actually see a, an easy way through that. And it reminds me in many ways of the debate in Scotland around independence, where Scottish society on that is so divided. And it wasn't helped by the fact that we had, you know, the independence referendum. Then a few months later, we had a general election. Then we had the Scottish elections the year after that. Then we had the local elections and another general election with the Brexit referendum. So so in a sense, there wasn't really any time for healing because we were in constant campaigns, which just reopened those divisions. And so, so I don't have the magic answer how we do this because at the moment, there isn't a lot of space to sit down with somebody who has a very different view and have a, a chilled out discussion. I mean, I would say probably the time that you perhaps have most chance to do that might be on the doorsteps. And when I do that, I, you, you normally have to, as someone who's knocking on the door of the canvasser, if you like, often to have that kind of conversation, you have to have a level of resilience to sort of absorb a certain amount of anger initially. I got this, for example, when we were in coalition government. And there was obviously some tough decisions, you know, it was a very difficult time in terms of economics. And so there was quite a lot of spending cuts, which were which were really hard to vote for and obviously had really made a lot of people very angry. And I in those interactions, I suppose I didn't necessarily think I would get people to agree with me. Probably the best that I hoped for was that that they would understand that I had thought about these things and that they weren't maybe quite as simple as they thought. And that that it was not like I was suddenly like really wanting to make cuts and thinking that was great or doing it casually, but that but that this was quite quite you know difficult set of decisions as to find a way through. And I think I you know I had quite a lot of those conversations, um, but it but it is quite difficult because what you get at the beginning of those sorts of conversations is this anger, this uh, this sort of fire, and getting past that. Often you don't get past that. Often you just get someone being aggressive about something and then the other person's defensive and to, to kind of get under that is quite hard. But it's also, it's really effortful for them as well because, yeah. you know, like you go first to your your gut reaction and your emotion, as you were yeah. saying, we're emotional beings and finding the time and space to do that on a doorstep can be extremely well, difficult. During an election campaign, it's not particularly well set up to it because, you know, for, for good reason, if you want to win elections, it's a numbers game. And so ideally you don't spend... 10 minutes on each doorstep because then you're going to radically reduce the number of people you're going to be able to speak to when it's not an election campaign you're that bit more relaxed and you are more able to do that but of course you're doing more door knocking during election campaigns so yeah but it's it, it is quite hard and I think also because we're not necessarily used to it so we haven't we haven't necessarily practiced these skills of how to have that kind of conversation disagreeing agreeably yeah no and also being open almost to changing your mind and saying, well, that's yeah. a really good point. I'd not thought of that before. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm going to go away and consider it and, and come back to you. Yeah. I, I mean, people do get punished in, certainly in politics, but actually in our, in our normal interactions in society 
for changing your mind because people see it as inconsistent. People might get teased for it or mocked for it if, you know, if they're constantly changing their mind. So, you know, the, the reaction to somebody doing that is not one that necessarily encourages people to do it a lot. No, and I completely agree, though I do find it interesting that, you know, it's a slight, how to talk about strong men, but when they change their mind, they seem to get away with it, you know, or or just wake yeah. up the next morning and tweet something differently. Like, nobody thinks it's just part of the topsy-turvy turmoil of what goes on. You know, what Boris yeah. Johnson, like, you know, yeah. famously... <laughs> wrote to even two articles yeah. talking about what he yeah. was going to do you know and I'm and I'm not sure whether that's a, a male thing I didn't mean to make the point in that yeah, way yeah, just yeah, all yeah. the examples but actually why is it okay for some people to change their mind and not have so many consequences and whereas whereas people like you maybe are a lot more anxious about it well I think it's really interesting because I did uh, one of the things I, I kind of almost admired about David Cameron was who was the prime minister of the coalition um conservative um he seemed it seemed quite effortless for him to change his mind and i don't know if that's because he hadn't really been particularly wedded to the first perspective but but you know every so often a government has to recognize the writings on the wall for a particular policy and that's it and the one way of looking at that is well that's listening you know and so and that's a good thing and i think actually it is a good thing it shows that our democracy can work but the sort of brazen nature within with which it's done sometimes you sort of you do look at it and you go wow that, is there that, a time that particularly springs to mind for well you I, there was there was lots i mean you know there was there was uh there was a big controversy about uh, changes to forestry policy there was but there, there was loads I mean, and and i mean even the gender pay gap stuff you know i mean we fought for them for five years to get it out and then you know it was after the coalition we'd got the legislation the initial legislation through to say it would happen and then they you know, a few months later, he's there and launching it to great acclaim. You know, you just go, wow, I wish he'd been so in favour of this, you know, when we were trying to get you to do it a few years ago. It is quite interesting to watch when some people do it and just kind of don't have consequences. Yeah, and I suppose I I just (coughs) wanted to talk about maybe an environment where it may be safer to change your mind, which obviously you've launched your book, um, Mm. Equal Power, and listeners will be telling you how you can buy it. It's about to hit the shops in its paperback version. But I wondered if you'd had any feedback from your readers that have caused you to reflect on anything you you'd written well it's interesting so I had the feedback that I've had and obviously I've been speaking at various book festivals and then some people have obviously got in touch with me on uh on email or social media although I'm not I'm not doing social media at the moment I've, I've I'm on a pause from it which I have to say is lovely and it's very interesting because I don't think anyone necessarily changes their mind as a result of social media interactions but people have uh, I, well I think first of all a lot of people who pick up my book and read it to the end are not people who are necessarily wanting to be challenged by it. They might want to be challenged in terms of maybe what can I do more about this, but not I disagree with the premise of this book and therefore I'm going to pick it up and, yeah. and read it. So so most of the feedback has been pretty positive that it has perhaps confirmed to people things they already felt. And, and that's part of what I really wanted to achieve in that I had certainly been aware of some of these things and felt like I was on my own thinking it. And I couldn't quite put my finger on some of the stuff. And then the more I learned about how gender inequality worked in society, I feel like I understand it more and I wanted to give people that understanding of it. So it, it is perhaps, it's for some confirmed what they, what they already knew. But I think, I mean, I have had at some of the festivals had, you know, interesting questions about, you know, the role of men in all of this. Um, memorably at uh, the Wigton Book Festival, the first question was was pretty challenging. You know, I think from somebody that hadn't necessarily read the book, because actually I, I'm very much of the view that men and women need to work together to create gender equality and that feminism is actually good for 
for everybody because we have a society where people aren't constrained by stereotypes. But but I think that is often the, the challenge that comes and it's, it's good to have that discussion. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I'm interested that you were talking about people aren't constrained by stereotypes. And if we just jump back to an earlier part, mm. the conversation where you were talking about Michael Fallon and yeah. how you stereotyped Ooh. him. But that's such a natural thing to, to do. Uh, and what do you, you know, is it the, that you want to, how do, I suppose, how do you want to work within stereotypes? How do you, how do you envisage that? Well, I, so I, I, it's, it's a hard thing to do to try to not stereotype anybody at any time because we look for shortcuts. You know, we, I mean, I say we're lazy. I don't mean that in a dreadfully pejorative way. You know, we we try to to understand what's going on and we take cues yeah. from lots of different things and we take information. But of course, some of that then gives us wrong information. Yeah, well, I mean, very yeah. simply, you see what well, a woman of childbearing age with a child, most people will probably presume that is their, that they're the mum. And that's yeah, exactly. a very sensible mental shortcut that you would take to engage yeah, more effectively. Exactly. And so, and, that, and that's that's fair enough. But at the same time, you have to be open to the fact that it might not be. And so they kind of, you know, say that and you don't sort of find it particularly weird. So, yeah, I think in terms of not not being stereotyped, it's about trying to see people as individuals while recognising that we do make judgments all of the time. But at least if we can be a bit more conscious of what those judgments are, then hopefully we can be a bit more open. And the other thing I think we just need to do, and it, and it's part of this how you change your mind. It's being open to different people's stories and exposing ourselves to different people's stories. So for men, in my view, you know, writing about gender inequality, I want them to understand what it's like for women when they walk home at night and it's dark and they're worried about, you know, being attacked because that's probably not a feeling that they've had themselves. And so the only way for them to understand that is to listen to the women in their lives who experience that or to read about it and so on. But in the same way, you know, I know what it's like to be a white you know, Scottish uh, middle-class woman who's a liberal and, you know, isn't religious, all, you know, all those things. But in order to understand the experiences of Muslim women or black women, then I need to listen to what they're saying because they have a different experience again. And so we generally need to need to be open to other people's perspectives in terms of what we read, in terms of who we listen to and being conscious of that. And so one of the things I try to do and people I follow on social media and, and reading is those different is those different approaches but the other thing is I've even followed Breitbart right because I wanted to see what the if you like other side of the political debate is saying but what's frustrating to me about social media is I never see Breitbart in my feed because although I've followed them so much is done by algorithms which the assumption is that I won't be interested in that then it then it doesn't come up highly on what I see and so even when you take those sort of actions the bubble that we are creating is just reinforcing a narrow range of views. And that's obviously not healthy. Yeah. And there are tools that you can get to try and help prevent that or different ways you can do it by subscribing for email newsletters, for example. They don't do algorithms in the same way, which is yeah. actually why so many more organisations rely on them for all sorts of things because they can control it as a method of communication. Just, I suppose, a, a final question, but particularly triggered by you talking about, like, I suppose, being open and out on uh, to... to to different views. Do you actively as an MP in your constituency try and seek out views of people who differ to you? And I guess particularly, let's take this, stick with the EU referendum um, and with, with leavers and people who voted for, for Brexit. I think your constituency voted to remain, yeah. but I'm sure there were some Brexit voters within there. Yeah. And, and do you actively try and spend time with those people? Um, I would say as far as is possible. So they're not geographically particularly concentrated. It's about one in four voted to leave, whereas three in four voted to uh, to remain. 
um, and certainly in terms of independence as well. Um, I, but I have tried to do surgeries in different types of, you know, I obviously go for geographic variety. I have also tried in terms of the organisations that I go to to do a good spread so that you're getting different age groups, different, uh, if you like, political outlooks and so on, because that way you're you're just more, you're receiving more of those different messages and that helps you respond better and be more open to them. And that's, in many ways to me, that's really heartening to hear. And for you, that is spectacularly unusual for an MP. And so the very first one of these podcasts that we did was with Deborah Mattinson from Britain Thinks and Blair's uh, and Brown's former advisor. And she was talking about how frustrating it was that most MPs don't do that or think that people who come to their surgeries are a, are a typical cross-section of society and who they're like, of course I'll hear and I know what's going on on the ground because people come to me. But that's that's really not the case because you're yeah. quite self-selecting already yeah. if you're someone yeah. who comes Most to people surgery. won't go and see through MP. It's why door knocking is so important. And it's interesting. So so obviously during an election campaign again, right, you, you're encouraged to go and knock on the doors in the areas that are likely to have a lot of votes for you because everyone, you know, everyone, you know yeah. the parts of your constituency that are stronger and those that are weaker. So what I deliberately did after the 2017 election was focus door knocking on some of the areas where we hadn't door knocked as much in the election because we didn't think we'd get so many votes. But I thought, well, do you know what? We, we need to go and speak to people in those areas that are less likely to vote for me. The best time to do it is immediately after an election because, you know, it's it's not going to be what you, yeah. you end up doing when it's two weeks to go to polling day. And and it is less warm welcome, you know, but, but I kind of think that's that is a positive yeah. thing to do so that at least people know where I am and you know it's not just about getting people to vote for you it, it's also about people understding that you're there as their member of parliament and you know what are their concerns and do, what was with? the reception Gabriel obviously approves or has a view on that <laughs> <laughs> on that strategy what was the the reception when you did that well it was a particular area that I went and door knocked and it was it wasn't a long time after I'd written an article which you know I would stand by, but which which was divisive. Which said that you know I'd I'd been asked a question on BBC Question Time whether I thought there should be a statue of Margaret Thatcher in Parliament Square, and I said yes. She's the first woman Prime Minister of our country, and I think that that is uh, significant. And I think while I disagree with what she did, um, that was powerful. Uh, but let's just say uh, in some of the um, streets of Kirk and Tillich, it wasn't particularly popular. So we had some heated discussions. Um, and, you know, and I, I don't anticipate that some of those people are going to be voting for me. But what started off as quite a heated exchange ended up, all right, well, we disagree on that. Fair enough. But, you know, if I can't help you as your MP, let me know. And and in a sense, that is building a bit of a bridge. It might be a bridge to vote. Well, fair enough. But, but hopefully it is a bit of a bridge anyway. Yeah, that's brilliant. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. Gabriel, thank you for joining us too. <laughs> thank you for being <laughs> fairly quiet. Could have been worse. Listeners, if you enjoyed what Joe and maybe Gabriel had to say, you can order her book Equal Power now or in paperback after February the 7th. If you'd like to find out more about us, visit depolarizationproject.com or catch up with us on Twitter at depolproject. We'd love to know what you've changed your mind about too. We'd like to thank you for listening. So thanks to our producer, Caroline Crampton and Kevin McLeod, whose dreams become real is used as our music.